Why read Anarchy, State, and Utopia? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Mack. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Eric Mack. Eric is a professor of philosophy at Tulane University, where he is also a faculty member of the Murphy Institute of Political Economy. A lot of his writings focus on the moral foundations of rights, the justification of property rights, historical understandings of economic justice, and the scope of legitimate coercion and the extent, if any, of the legitimate state. Eric was actually one of our first guests ever on the podcast, so we suggest you scroll way back into the catalog and check out my previous conversation with him as well. And of course, enjoy this episode too. Eric, welcome back to The Curious Task. It's very good to be back. It's great to have you on. So Eric, we base each episode around a question and theme and go over the answers and conversation takes us, as you know. Our question today is, why read Anarchy, State, and Utopia? And we'll be answering that question by basically doing a 101 introduction to the book and the ideas it lays out. You're going to be our guide through this journey. Full disclaimer to the listeners right up front, especially those who might be a little familiar with the book. Of course, Eric and I will not be able to cover everything today as we talk, but we're going to do our best to sort of create that trace teaser and high-level illustration of the book. But before we jump right to the meat, Eric, I want you to actually set some context for the book and how it fits in, especially into philosophical history and so on. Let's start with sort of a quick hit on telling us a bit about who Robert Nozick was and what he specialized in. I wanted to just talk uh, about very quick character uh, setting first. Uh, well, um, Robert Nozick was born in Brooklyn to... Um, a Jewish family. I'm not sure whether his parents were born in the United States or had immigrated from Eastern Europe. In 1938, uh, he was uh, a sort of uh, child prodigy in many ways, went to Columbia as an undergraduate. At Columbia, he apparently organized what was one of the first uh, students for democratic society chapters. um, what didn't have that name, but uh, it later had that name. So he thought of himself as a socialist, went to Princeton University for his graduate studies. There was a fellow named Bruce Goldberg there, also a graduate student who was already a libertarian and apparently in conversations with uh, Goldberg, uh, Nozick became very libertarian and was also introduced to Rothbard, Murray Rothbard. Uh, and um, was impressed by Rothbard's sort of libertarian natural rights arguments for anarchism, and but thought that must be wrong. And so one of the one of his early intellectual projects was to uh, write about uh, write a natural rights oriented defense of the minimal state. And just another, just uh, quickly, he sort of quickly rose through the academic ranks. He was already well known as incredibly brilliant guy when he published this book, which people found absolutely horrifying. <laughs> so uh, he had the uh, the great pleasure of uh, being thought of as a, uh, a shocking intellectual uh, uh, who is overturning all sorts of established views. Uh, um, and he shortly thereafter, or maybe already had at a very young age, been uh, uh, promoted to full professor at, at Harvard, where he stayed for his whole career. Died fairly young, must have been uh, maybe 
early 60s uh, uh, as a result of stomach cancer, which he had been tr- treated for for about seven or eight years before he died. Mm. So very, very sad uh, ending of this story. Mm-hmm. And, and just drilling into, because you, you, you touched on it, I want to get into further about Anarchy State and Utopia, when it came out and, and then that sort of thing. So let's actually dive a little further into the context of when it came out, what kind of trends and ideas were popular in philosophy at the time, and how was this the answer to sort of other things like John Rawls and so on and so forth? Good, good, good. So um, I think we actually have to talk a little bit about Rawls and a little bit of the setting that Rawls was writing in. Um, so... Um, in the 1950s, 1960s, into the 1970s, um, insofar as philosophers endorsed any substantive view in political philosophy, uh, they tended to be utilitarian. And uh, so very, very roughly utilitarianism, and most of your listeners will already know this, uh, is the view that um, the best outcome, the best situation in the world is the situation in which there's the greatest max. There's the greatest amount of happiness minus unhappiness. So the greatest net happiness. Uh, that's the best outcome in any society. And they utilitarianism holds that it follows automatically that that's the outcome we ought to pursue. So whatever will most effectively bring about this greatest aggregate happiness is what ought to be done. Social institutions ought to be created uh, that. Um, that promote uh, this. And the uh, part of the theme of this, and you see this in people like Mill, the great advocate of utilitarianism, was the idea that everybody should be prepared to sacrifice their own happiness for the sake of the greater good, um, and that everybody should be, at least in principle, prepared to sacrifice other people's happiness for the sake of the greater good. Uh, and to his credit, Rawls was found this, uh, this doctrine uh, disturbing. Uh, and he wanted to defend uh, a type of welfare state liberalism, but on a better basis. Um, the most important thing about Rawls here is the criticism that he gives of utilitarianism. So let me, there's a, there's a section in Rawls, um, and Nozick sort of writes in a way aping that very section. Uh, where Rawls takes up a certain argument. He doesn't say where the argument comes from. It's a type of utilitarian argument. Uh, The argument was really formulated by a man named uh, J.J.C. Smart, who was an Australian utilitarian philosopher. Um, And uh, Smart's argument went this way, and I can put it very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, um, We all recognize that if somebody has a toothache, and they can go to the dentist and have the cavity drilled out and filled um, that it's rational for that person to go and submit to that degree of pain in order to prevent themselves to prevent themselves from having the much greater pain of having to have the tooth pulled at some later date. So in this case, it's a minimization of pain, but you can imagine an equivalent uh, argument for maximization of happiness. Give up some happiness now in order to have greater happiness in the future. We all recognize that this sort of maximization policy is rational. And Smart said, well, if that's rational, then it's rational just because it's always better to have more happiness uh, over pain, no, no matter where it is. 
And so if it's the case that uh, by going to the dentist today and having your cavity filled, you can prevent somebody else from needing to have a tooth pulled, that's the same reason applies there and requires you to go to the dentist on behalf of the other person. And maybe if you can be without complication forced to go to the dentist to undergo this smaller amount of pain to prevent the larger amount of pain, that too ought to be done. So Rawls says, um, so let's look at this argument. And the argument, he says, depends upon the idea, depends upon ignoring what Rawls calls the separateness of persons. Um, the separateness of, if you ignore the separateness of persons, it doesn't matter on whom the pain falls and on and for whom the relief of pain or the achievement of the greater happiness is achieved. If so, Rawls says the argument, this argument for utilitarianism depends upon a conflation of people, thinking as though people are all parts of a larger thing called society. And if society on net benefits, it's just as rational to achieve that on net benefit as it is within a given individual. Rawls rejects it for the same reasons that I've already mentioned. Uh, no uh, um, different phases of people's lives are all part of the same life, <laughs> but different people aren't in the same way, all part of the same social life. There isn't a thing called society that has a life of its own, uh, and therefore the rationale for incurring some cost now in your life to protect yourself from a greater cost in the future, or incurring some cost now so that there'll be some pleasure in the future, uh, that reasoning doesn't transfer over to society. Uh, Rawls then, I don't want to mischaracterize him too much, uh, but he then says, well, if we shouldn't seek the aggregate good in society, what is the great radiant end <laughs> that we should all seek, right? You know, if we shouldn't sacrifice for the sake of the aggregate good, what should we all sacrifice for, right? So he doesn't really break out of that. Uh, and he ends up saying, well, I, I imagine people get together and they agree on certain sorts of things, and social goals. And the crucial one that he imagines people agreeing on is the goal of raising the income of the lowest income group as high as possible. So if you have many different possible distributions of income in society, you should, you should arrange things so that whoever ends up in the lowest income group is, has a higher income on average than the lowest income group under any sort of alternative arrangement. Um, and that's what sacrifices what's being imposed on people to bring about. Uh, so what Nozick does at the beginning of Anarchy State and Utopia, and, and he and Rawls and he are, are colleagues at Harvard, so it's a down the hallway sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he basically says, uh, Rawls is right to criticize this view that says for the sake of a certain purported social goal, people ought to be prepared to sacrifice and ought to be prepared to impose sacrifices on other people. He's right to say that, that, that utilitarianism isn't such a goal, but the truth of the matter is there isn't any such goal, right? Rawls's attempt to find a substitute goal, 
which everyone ought to be prepared to sacrifice for, is mistaken. And you see that's mistaken if you truly take seriously this notion of the separateness of persons. And as Rawls himself had said, the separateness of persons is the idea that each person has his own system of ends and that each person is rational to try to promote his own system of ends. Uh, and uh, perhaps there ought to be certain sorts of limitations on how you go about promoting your own system of ends. Um, but it seems like uh, it's a you betray the idea of the separateness of persons if you say, on the one hand, the separateness of persons gets rid of utilitarianism, but now we have to find some other ultimate goal, common goal that everyone... And so Nozick basically argues in passages that kind of mimic roles, um, um, this utilitarian argument is mistaken. What's wrong with the utilitarian argument is that people are separate beings with their own um, equally ultimate, equally important in their own eyes ends that they seek. It's true that the fact that other people like myself have these ends for themselves should have some sort of impact on what my behavior ought to be. And But Nozick says the impact is that there are certain constraints on how I can treat other people. And the constraints are, I can't treat them as though they exist for my sake, just as they can't treat me as though I exist for their sake. Mm. So the lesson we learn, which has interpersonal force between us, is not, oh, somehow we all should march soldiers to shoulder to, shoulder to some common social end, but we ought to take account of the fact that other people are separate beings with ends of their own by not interfering with their pursuit of their ends, just as we expect them not to interfere with our pursuit of our own ends. Uh, and so there's this notion of constraints on value pursuing behavior, but not that you should surrender your value pursuit for the sake of some social value. And that's the crucial opening argument uh, um, that Nozick makes. And it's going to have implications as he goes down uh, the road. And that's why the book begins with this very strong statement about individuals have certain rights and uh, therefore there are things that may not be done to them. Right. Or there are things that may not be done to them as, as in the form of violation of their rights. Um, so this is a, a radically different view than utilitarianism. And it's radically different in the way that Rawls's argument suggests one should move. But Nozick says... Rawls hasn't made the appropriate move on the basis of his argument. And the difference is that you can have two different forms of basic social principle. One says, the first thing we have to know is what we all ought to achieve together. <laughs> and the next, then it follows from that, that we ought all to organize to achieve that single common end. And if somebody is not going to go along with it, well, they can be conscripted into 
the endeavor. Hmm. So that's what I call very broadly a consequentialist picture of political philosophy. And no success, that whole type of picture of political philosophy is mistaken. What political philosophy has to do is not to focus on what ends we should commonly serve, but what rules we have to abide by in our interactions with one another. And the fundamental rules are these negative rules about not using other people, not killing them, not maiming them, not enslaving them. Uh, And that's the way we get a society in which people can live together at peace and then maybe find mutually beneficial interactions with one another. So it's a very different picture of the very, very basic nature of political philosophy. Excellent. I think that was an excellent overview. Not only do we cover so far who Robert Nozick was and what he kind of thought, but I also think that's a great context for, for the book and what it sets out to achieve. And 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 that's excellent because I was I was going to actually bridge that right into the next part, which is getting into a little bit more specifics about about the book itself. Now that we have all that context, now good, good, now good. now without getting because we will in a second, but just without good. for the moment getting into the arguments in each specific part or or, or touring through each specific right. part right. at a high level. Why don't you talk to us a bit about what each section does and how he structured the okay. book? So someone okay. coming at, at this, what is Nozick's plan through the book? And then yeah. we'll dive into yeah. details. Yeah, good, good, good. So book's divided into three parts, very unequal in length. Um, the first part is specifically about uh, the debate between advocates of the minimal state, the night watchman state, and... Uh, uh, the people he calls individualist anarchists. As okay. uh, I mentioned, the part I just said, the, the business with about this argument for rights actually is in the beginning of that first part, mm-hmm. um, but it's never advertised as part as, as what that part is. Um, and so, um, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Nozick actually met with Rothbard and Rothbard tried to convert him to anarchism and he didn't Convert, succeed at converting him. Uh, but Nozick uh, thought it was an extremely interesting, Rothbard's position that there ought to be no state uh, and that uh, the, de- the desirable functions of a state, namely protecting people's lives and liberty and property, would be better carried out as everything else would be better carried out uh, by private firms competing in the marketplace. So this was a sort of free market anarchism. uh, And uh, he had an elaboration of how this would work out, even though if you think about things very conventionally, it seems crazy. Um, And Nozick sufficiently saw the power of this that he ended up devoting probably the first close to half of of the book to a very, very complicated refutation of, and I'll say a little bit more when we get to that moment Mm -hmm. of that. Um, So he's defending the minimal state, which is supposed to only protect people's rights and uh, personal rights and property and contract against the more radical yet anarchist view. That's what he does in the first part. In the second part, he looks for reasons that people might find plausible for having a more than minimal state, a state that would go beyond this, this these minimum night watchman functions. And he thinks 
that the most likely thing that people will say is a state is needed in order to achieve distributive justice, economic justice. Uh, and his Harvard colleague Rawls has just written this book, A Theory of Justice, which we talked about a little bit already. But the bulk or the most distinctive thing about that book is the idea that justice in, in economic holdings is a matter of the state recontouring the distribution of income in a way which leads the worst off to be as well off as possible. So sort of maximum downward redistribution, not redistribution downward to the point that it's self-defeating, but as much as you can possibly achieve in the way of downward redistribution ought to be the goal. So the second part of that of the book is a critique of various attempts to defend something like a, a conception of economic justice that's going to require a powerful state to be achieved, if it can be achieved at all. One part is directly critical of, of, of Rawls and then knows it presents his alternative conception of justice. And then there are other parts of part two of the book where he attacks other state-enhancing doctrines. Mm. So there's some critique of Marxism, there's this critique of uh, straightforward egalitarianism that says the state or to, in some respects, make everybody equal. There's a series of these attacks. And uh, part two as a whole is devoted to eliminating what he thinks people will find the most attractive of these uh, ways of enhancing the role of the state. And then part three, uh, he says, uh, well, none of what I've said will be really inspiring to many people. <laughs> won't be really, won't get people really excited. So I want, but the people who really get excited are people who are um, uh, introduced to some attractive utopia. So I'm going to show that in a certain sense, the minimal state is, he calls it the framework for utopia. So first thing we have to get rid of is the idea that there is one single type of society that is utopia for everybody. Because once again, people are different, people are separate, they have their own ends, they have their own aspirations. So that nicely fits in with the opening of the book. Uh, and uh, so we shouldn't expect uh, that everyone will want to live in the same type of community. Um, and on top of that, even if we knew um, what type of community would be best, or even if we knew that there was some type of community that would be, be that's best for everybody, we don't know which which person belongs in what community. And the only way to achieve this is, in effect, to allow there to be a marketplace for communities. And a marketplace for communities would be communities would form. They would want to remain in existence. They would want to attract other people to join them. Uh, the way they would do this was to be uh, sensitive to problems that were arising in their community and try to solve them or sensitive to what sort of people they might be able to recruit to their community 
So they would modify their communities to do that to the extent that they thought that would be helpful. Uh, and people could move back and forth across these different communities. And this would produce the sort of um, knowledge of um, what sort of communities were possible in some stable way and what sorts of people were happy in what sorts of communities. And uh, it would be crazy to think that there would ever be some final end where everyone would be happy, most happy where they were and not moving around. But what this would do would be to generate enormous increasing knowledge about what sorts of communities were possible and whether a particular type of community was the best community for me or for you. And uh, uh, that knowledge was gener would be generated by something very much like the price system in normal economics, right? Um, so people would, uh, uh, there would be this type of adjustment that was continually going on to bring products into line with people's uh, uh, desires and to bring people's desires maybe into line with products in various ways. And so uh, if you really want the best we can ever do, and it's pretty good to satisfy utopian aspirations is to create a sort of legal framework with which protected this type of competitive, cooperative interaction among developing communities. And that's the third part of the book. Excellent. And we're actually going to go back and trace a couple more specific details in each part. But I think that was an excellent overview of each part. But before we do that, Eric, we do have to take our break. So everyone, yes. you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Mack today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Vincent Geloso, Joe Aragona, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm going to speak with Eric Mack today. So, Eric, I think the first half was excellent. We provide some context for who Nozick was, when Anarchy State and Utopia came out, and what kind of arguments he was answering and tackling in the context of, of the book's release and, and the work. And then we also did a high-level tour about really what the book plan is for Anarchy State and Utopia, what part one two and three we're accomplishing in the last half of our episode here i want to dive just a little bit deeper into each of those parts so you can provide our listeners with a little more insight into what's going on there so part one state of nature theory or how to back into a state without really trying that's the official title of the part so generally speaking let's just take some time for you to talk a bit more about what's truly being worked through in this part and what are really some of the the key highlights in that part if you wanted someone to take away something from those parts if anything, what would that part be? Good, good. Okay, good. So imagine that people are looking for, to, someone has the project of justifying the state, right? Maybe justifying the minimal state, justifying uh, a more than minimal state. The uh, standard way of doing that, for many people, the consequentialist way is to say, if we had so-and-so state, um, then there would be this, this particular desirable outcome. 
Nobody who's a party to the debate in part one of Anarchy State and Utopia says that. <laughs> uh, the anarchists, the relevant anarchists claim that uh, Nozick is trying to defeat is the claim that no that no, no state can be legitimate. That was Rothbard's position. And no state can be legitimate because the things that you'd have to do to create a state and to maintain a state would violate people's rights. And so since you can't create a state except by violating people's rights and you shouldn't violate people's rights, we shouldn't have a state. That's Rothbard's position. So Nozick's critique of that uh, requires that he say, I can explain how we can have a minimal state without anybody's rights being violated. Right? If the crucial thing is not to violate rights, I can give you, it turns out, a fairly complicated story about how we would get to a state um, without violating rights. And the title of the uh, section that you, of uh, the part that you mentioned is, uh, this is not really a story of people who are planning, intending, hoping to create a state. I'm going to give you a nice invisible hand account, right? Namely, people are doing things for various reasons, which they have, and without their intending it, uh, there's going to be a certain sort of result, namely the existence of this minimal state. So here's the story that Nozick tells. And there's one crucial moment that I'll, that I'll mention as I get to it. So Nozick says, uh, well, imagine that you had a world of these competing uh, protective services that Rothbard talks about. So I, it's valuable for me not to, uh, uh, to be able to call somebody to protect me when a gang of people start breaking into my house to beat me up and steal my stuff. And so uh, in a Rothbardian world, uh, anticipating this, I, um, I sign a contract with some people and the contract says, when I call you, you get there real quick and protect me, right? And then maybe there's other, it's more complicated because there are questions about what happens when there are People are charged with crimes and you have to have courts. And Rothbard has a story about this. Nozick basically begins by saying that um, um, there are sort of, uh, I guess, what's called network effects among economists, but I don't really know what the word phrase means. There are, almost, there are, there are economies of scale. Uh, and so it would be a lot cheaper for me to be protected by the same organization that protects you and other people than for us all to be protected by various different groups of folks who then have to coordinate with one another so that they decide on what counts as good trial procedures and who the judges will be. Um, the more people that join up with one particular protective agency or a close knit group of protective agencies. Uh, the more people that sign up, the more it's in other people's interest to sign up. And so there's something that begins to look like a natural monopoly. It looks like there's an advantage to people to, um, for most people, 
to be to sign up as customers of the very same protective organization. So he says that, but he says, uh, and if that was the whole answer, all of a sudden we now have a state because of this natural monopoly. Uh, it would be would be it's it wouldn't it's that's not as cute a story as Nozick likes. He he wants there to be a bigger problem so he can solve the bigger problem. So. Imagine that there'll be holdouts of various sorts. There'll be people who have sort of special tastes in the way that they're protected, or they have special uh, uh, preferences in terms of what they think good judicial procedures should be. Uh, and so there are these um, these at least marginal protective agencies that still exist. We should add here that both Rothbard and Nozick agree that if you have an outlaw agency, right, who sell the service of protecting rights violators from punishment, uh, those can, of course, be legitimately suppressed. And they would be suppressed in Rothbard's system by some sort of coalition of the of the good protective agencies. And something like that in Nozick's system, would be, they'd be suppressed by what Nozick calls the dominant protective agency. But... Can the, will the dominant protective agency become a state, right? And Nozick says that the crucial thing to being a state is having, in some sense, a monopoly on the use of force in society or a monopoly on the use of protective or rights-protecting force. If no agency has that type of monopoly, then you don't have a state, right? And so how are we going to get to this monopoly or something close to this monopoly situation? Uh, we've already suppressed the outlaw agencies, but there are still these peripheral, uh, sort of somewhat idiosyncratic agencies, and including people who just say, I'm going to self-protect myself. Okay? Now, if an agency which is outside of the dominant agency, engages in very risky protection, right? If they say, uh, if you give you give us $10 a month and anybody who you're scared of will kill, <laughs> right? That counts as an outlaw agency, right? If the level of risk that they impose on other people uh, is great enough, it's hard to say exactly where the lines should be drawn, then that's an outlaw agency they can be pro prohibited. But there are going to be agencies which uh, impose some level of risk greater than the dominant agency, and people still might want to sign up with them. Maybe they have cheaper, uh, they're not as good, they, they don't spend as much money on quality control. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's more dangerous for our clients to live in a world in which other people subscribe to these semi-risky protective agencies. Uh, or, you know, these agencies might uh, um, be um, less careful about who they decide to punish. Um, and or they, they may not have very reliable procedures about deciding who should be punished. So... Uh, Nozick says there, these sort of risky agencies that we don't feel 
straightforwardly can be suppressed uh, fall into a special intermediary category. And he thinks this is, this is a category that doesn't just apply to protective agencies. Uh, there are, roughly speaking, the people who are uh, sufficiently careful in what they're doing in terms of risk they impose on other people, that it's clear that we can't suppress them, right? So I impose a risk on people when I drive my car down the street, right? But uh, um, that level of risk doesn't rise to the, some threshold that allows other people to suppress me. Um, and when I'm driving down the street at 90 miles an hour, <laughs> it does rise, right? But what about the people who are just a few, little bit over the speed limit or something? Uh the traditional view, Nozick says, is that there are only two categories of other people with respect to this issue. There are the people who you can suppress because of how risky their behavior is with respect to other people's rights. And there are the people who are obviously not subject to suppression because what they're doing is so low in risk. Uh, if, though, if, we think, if, if those are the only categories, then Nozick's favorite move doesn't get in, doesn't have a place. But here's his favorite move. He says, you know, there can be an intermediary category of people who are doing things which we really don't want to tolerate, but it's re not really clear, not really clear that we have a straightforward right to interfere with them. And in those people's cases, there's an intermediary thing we can do. We can stop them from behaving in that way, but compensate them <laughs> if they've suffered a loss because of being stopped. So, and this is what he calls the principle of compensation. So the protective agencies that are not outlaws, but they're still making us quite uneasy because of the riskiness of their behavior, but we don't feel completely justified in just suppressing them, they can legitimately be suppressed as long as we compensate them for certain type of losses that they would be subject to. Uh, and in fact, Nozick says the compensation, at least for the clients of those agencies, would be that they can sign up for protection with us, maybe for a reduced fee. So what you have now is a justifiable, coercive elimination of these marginal agencies. So Rothbard is right that you would have to use force to get rid of them, but it's justifiable force as long as you're compensating them. And if you compensate them by way of providing them with your protective services, you are now um, spreading your protection to all or almost all members of society. And so you should count as being a state because you have this monopoly and you've used a certain amount of coercion, but it's justified coercion to get there. And in getting there, you've increased the number of people in the society, the percentage of people in the society who you're protecting. So, but you didn't do this because you wanted to be a state. You did it because you wanted to protect your clients better, but you can't, 
protect your clients better, except by suppressing these risky people. And you can't do that unless you're prepared to compensate them. So it's pretty, I will say here, I don't think the argument works. <laughs> yeah, we, might but, get, we might get to that in a second, but but, yeah. but but ultimately that's that's how you back into a state without really trying, according to that's the right. right? That's it's right. a justifiable right. one at that. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Okay. And um, I'm just going to, and we'll see if we can... Uh, We'll, we'll see if we can f- fit the rest of this in here. I mean, our time, oh, our, oh, yeah. our, our time yeah. is winding down. I mean, Eric, I mean, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just call an audible. Maybe if, if you're able to, to do another part with us, maybe we'll record again and do a part two, if you're okay with that. Um, yeah. um, but, but, uh, but I want to, because I, I don't want to rush part two, depending on how much time we talk about. It. And then of course we have to get to, uh, to the third part. So I, I want to move the same sort of style of approach. You just took to part two which is beyond the minimal state, as right. the part's called. Right. And so, so again, like, why don't we dive into it a little further? Following part Good. one, what, what's happening more specifically in, in this part of the book? Yeah, okay. So now I think the best thing to do is just to talk about the first chapter in part two, okay. which is called Distributive Justice and includes Nozick's laying out his own view about what economic justice is and contrasting it with Rawls, who is the obvious target that he has to deal with. Um, so let's do those its own view. And it's very, very abstract. Um, I don't mean hard to get. It's just it doesn't get filled in. Uh, so Nozick's view is that just as in all other matters, what's really important is what processes are going on and what processes are allowed not what the social, overall social outcome is. So what should, how, how should we, if you're going to go about creating a world in which people's economic holdings are just or their income is just, what should you do? You shouldn't do anything except allow people to, roughly speaking, peacefully acquire and trade with one another. And maybe also... People allow people through their agents to reacquire things that they got peacefully, but were taken away from them violently. Mm-hmm. So what we really have to do to have justice is to simply specify what we might call the entitlement generating actions. Nozick never actually does specify them, right? He says, there's just, I'm just going to give you the barest structural claim. And clearly what we need, though, is we need some sort of account, some sort of statement of the peaceful processes, which count as an initial acquisition of something from nature, right? And of course, there are going to be different types of processes, maybe for different types of things. And he says, in passing, there's there's going to be partly a matter of convention, um, you know, which just happens. We just decide that, uh, you know, putting 10 stakes around this piece of land suffices to mark it as yours. But we might have come up with the idea that you have to do 15, right? It doesn't matter as long as we do something that enables people to acquire and enables other people to know that you've done what constitutes acquisition. And it's not something that some group of people are automatically disbarred from doing. Uh, and it's something that we can check whether you've done it or not, those sorts of things. But we have to specify, but 
to have a just society, we need these rules uh, which enable people to make raw material their own, uh, to make raw material their property, and which, again, uh, you want rules where two people can simultaneously make the same thing their own, right? Things like that. But we also need trade. One of the, you know, we, we want, people can pursue their ends much, people can pursue their ends much better if they're allowed to make raw material their own. People can pursue their ends even better <laughs> if they're allowed to trade with one another and buy and sell. And we all know these, these sorts of the benefits of this. So we have to uh, lay out particular ways which will count as acceptable transfers of property. And then there are these cases where things get taken. Oh, and if you've gotten what you've got through acceptable initial acquisition or through acceptable forms of trade or donation or gift giving, uh, then you're entitled to those things. And then we also have to have these rules about if somebody takes something of yours without your permission, what, by what processes can you reacquire those things? There is no truth, Nozick says, about proportionately how things should be divided among people. There is no way, there's no right way, right structure of possessions for that things have to be in. We don't have to create a, an equal world or a world in which the people at the lowest level are as high up as possible in order for there to be justice. And the justice of a particular holding is not a matter of it being part of a whole system, which we have judged to be just. Okay? Rather, it works the other way around. The whole system is just just in case all of the particulars are just, right? So it's a ground up type of thing. What I have is just, what you have is just, what somebody else has is just. And the societal distribution being just is just a way of saying that all these individual cases are just. And the individual cases are just on the basis of their developing out of the appropriate sorts of peaceful acquisition acquiring. So that's, he calls that the historical entitlement. It's hard to give a simple statement of his critique of people like Rawls, but um, I think the most important argument he makes, the most famous argument he makes, is that there's an inherent tension within the attempt to apply, to continually reapply uh, a doctrine like uh, Rawls's or any doctrine that he calls an end-state doctrine. So very, very quickly, for Rawls, we've said we have a just distribution of income if things have been arranged so that the people at the bottom of the ladder are as high up on, the, the bottom rung is as high up as the bottom rung can be. And we do this through, maybe we have markets, maybe we have some private property, private economic decision-making, but we have all sorts of taxation and redistribution and so on. Um, the problem that, that Nozick points out is, suppose that 
we now have a set of resources or a set of in, a set of income in society, and the state acts so as to ensure that over the next five years, as best it can, it it, it introduces forms of redistribution or subsidy or taxation that uh, will distribute that income so that the lowest on the rung or as high up as they can be. But inevitably, there are going to be all different sorts of things that people will do, which are completely consistent with the existing legal regime, which, for instance, produce more wealth. (laughs) Right. So A and B get together and with what they have been given under the distributive system, they form some sort of a common enterprise and they both profit and C is no worse off. But now the distribution that exists will very likely be unjust by Rawls's grounds because some of what A and B have gained can be siphoned off and transferred to C. So it turns out that if you do perfectly peaceful and innocuous things, with what has been assigned to you in the name of justice, the same principle of justice is now going to come along and say, no, you're not really entitled to what some of what you were given in justice, right? So we have to rearrange things. But then once we rearrange things, other people will think of ways to benefit themselves or others, or they'll screw up (laughs) and destroy resources that have been given to them. And if they do that, then they'll be able, then the idea will be, well, look, we could transfer some resources from people who haven't screwed up to the people who screwed up. And the fact that we can do that means that if we don't do it, it's unjust. So completely innocuous activities, either by individuals, by themselves, or in voluntary cooperation with other people, are going to turn what looks like it was supposed to be a just world into an unjust world, One question is, well, how could completely innocuous activities turn a just world into an unjust world? But Rawls would be committed to saying that. And further, we now have to intervene in the world, which we just finished saying we have finally arranged as just to readjust it. And then, of course, we know that in down the line, we're going to have to do the same thing again. So whenever we give somebody something on the grounds that this is finally your just distribution, that person will go, sure. (laughs) Right. So I know I've seen the last 18 times I was assigned something. But because I figured out a way to benefit myself further peacefully and in mutual uh, benefit with other people, I'm now going to be told that that wasn't really the just thing for me to have because it has to be at least to some extent nullified. So that's his major criticism of any theory that says there is some formula for how income should be distributed in society, and that formula should not just be done once, applied once, but when things get out of line, we have to reapply the formula, right? If you don't, if you say, well, no, we should never, we shouldn't reapply the formula, then you're saying, well, the formula is only for use, only useful at one particular moment. And after that, it's what matters is just what people have voluntarily agreed to. Right. So 
and I'm, I'm not sure if the listener, or it'd be my fault, but I'm not sure if the listener heard that. I sort of tried to pronounce yeah. it properly, enunciate it properly, but uh, but of course the part is called Beyond the Minimal State and it has a question mark at the end. Right. So obviously right. after all the context that you just provided, it's clear that, you know, obviously knows like at the very least these uh, tons of problems by being able to just anything, be, right. justify anything beyond the minimal state right. at all. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Um, um, so that's just a sort of sampling, right? Because there are all sorts of other arguments there. Uh, and then the later parts of part two, which I mentioned before, mm. there are, there's a really nice critique on Marxism. There's a really nice critique of, uh, well, a brief critique of uh, egal- egalitarianism. There's even uh, some skeptical remarks about the ideal of equal opportunity. So that concludes us talking more specifically about what's going on in part two there, Eric. And of course, I am keeping an eye on the time here, and our time is definitely wound down. I don't think we can talk about utopia in just a matter of five or ten minutes, nor more of your ideas specifically on the book. So, Eric, I say, how about how about we do another episode? What what do you think? Yes, sir. Definitely. All right. Okay. So, everyone, for now, this is the end of what has become part one of. Why Read Anarchy, State, and Utopia? I've been speaking with Eric Mack. Thank you very much for joining us. And we'll see you again to finish off our conversation in part two. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.